Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Long, like, pause there, Bill. Yeah, I mean... Really evocative Slow of, summer day. Evocative of the dog day. Slow summer day. The number one story on Law360.com right now is a uh, story about bananas and copyrights, so... That was, I find that to be a crowning achievement of both mine and yours. Scintillating. Um, Feel really happy about it. And we are going to talk about that more later in the show. Yeah, I just thought, you know, I just thought I'd get everybody ready for it. Um, You know, ready. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I mean, I I personally can't wait. This is the important news of the day. If people were hovering over the like, do I want to keep playing this episode or not? Now they're like, well, banana costumes are coming up, so I'm going to stick around. Yes. Uh, well, there was some. I mean, we, we we talked about a couple of big data breach settlements last week. And before we get into the news, there was there was something else on that on that order this yeah. week. Uh, was it Capital One? Capital yep. One had yeah. a huge breach, I believe, which was announced on Monday night or Sunday night. Yeah. But um, how many people? It was like it was huge. It was like it was in the nine figures. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, you know, we don't. It's still sort of a developing story, and we don't know much yet. But as with many things, uh, we expect lawsuits. Somebody will there probably will, get sued. There will be plenty of t- uh, about this story to talk about on our legal podcast. Yeah, <laughs> in the yes. uh, in the coming months and years ahead, I can guarantee you that much. Yeah, uh, we do have an interesting show today. You guys um, talked to Nicole Norea, the senior immigration reporter, joined us, um, sort of about the 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 crunch that the it, that the Trump administration's shifting immigration policies have had on on the legal sector on immigration attorneys yeah, yeah. um she, she we bill and i had a really good talk with her and mm-hmm. she reminds us all that we should all take a vacation so <laughs> yeah, uh, take yeah deep it's, it's a good it's a good talk um later even if you're not an immigration attorney people should stick around for that because i think some of the lessons about attorney burnout apply to a lot of parts of the bar right now but before we get to that we have a uh, story about pre-attorney burnout yes uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, a couple of folks who are Trying to be lawyers. Yes, definitely. Um, more than a couple. This affects about 9,000 uh, people who are trying to take the California State Bar Exam. Uh, this is the second time we've talked about the California State Bar Exam on the show. You might remember that we spoke in December um, about how it was becoming very difficult to pass that test. The right. uh, passage rates were sort of historically low. Uh, well, <laughs> over the weekend, uh, the test appears to have become a little bit easier for, like I said, about 9,000 people who uh, were set to take it this week um, on Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, You know, just uh, so it was over the weekend on Saturday, like I say, these 9,000 people who were going to take the test got an email from the state bar uh, that made the unusual choice of disclosing the bar exam's essay question topics a few days before the test was supposed to be administered. Um, It was very bizarre. Uh, People didn't quite know what to make of it. And now... Uh, the California Supreme Court has stepped in to kind of untangle this this big mess. Now I'm no uh, I, well, I was going to say I'm no doctor, but I'm no proctor. And but I, 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 was, I was under the impression that 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 the way that testing worked was that in in this in this world that you that you, you don't know the questions ahead of time. It's unusual. It's, it's not un- usually done that way. Amber, you took the bar exam. This isn't par for the course. I'm, 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 I'm going to talk about your experience in a second. Uh, yeah, because I'm dying to say how I feel yeah, yeah, about yeah. this already. But go ahead and explain. Yeah, more let's, before we do let, it. Let, just to be very clear, like I said, it's about nine thousand people who were supposed to take the test. Um, it's a two day test on July thirtieth and thirty first. So on Saturday, the twenty seventh, uh, this email popped into the, all of their inboxes from uh, a woman named Donna Hershkowitz, and she is the chief of programs at the California State Bar. 
And the email to the students explained that at some point, uh, an email that contained the subject matter topics for the essay portion. So it's like these are the topics that you're going to be asked to write an essay question or an essay response about um, for the for this you know test that they were about to take. Uh, those topics had been inadvertently sent to about 16 different law school deans. This, this is an email that was sent out to like law school deans on Thursday in like the middle of the week. Now, when the state bar uncovered this, they realized, okay, we have now lost exclusive control of this information. They, they didn't. They didn't. They lost. They lost the football. Yeah. They. 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 they fumbled and I mean, the ball. I guess the worry was that it would then leak from some of those sixteen people. So yes. They had to even the playing selectively field. leaking or whatever. So yes, out of an abundance of caution that it might give someone or some set of test takers an unfair advantage, the bar took the extraordinary step of just disclosing the essay topics to everyone and said, "These are the topics." On the uh, on the essay portion of the test that you'll have to know. So tell me when you want me to jump in with how much this melts down my brain. Well, I want to first this. I want to first talk about um, sort of the the initial reaction, which sure. is what you're talking about. Um, you know, I I kind of was glib in the beginning of the segment and saying, oh, this makes the test easier for people who want to take it. That's I suppose true enough, but people, a lot of students, like, were ex- extremely freaked out. I mean, I don't have to tell people you. People are freaked out anyway, yeah. just preparing for Stressful the time. exam. And it's days ahead of when they're going to take it. You know, it. it's 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 very intense, very meticulous, and for something like this, to even that even is nominally meant, that could even nominally be in your favor, it can really throw you off your game. Um, more to the point, a lot of students weren't sure that um, it was even real. Um, oh, I think that's a very reasonable reaction. You would think, like, how could this be true? And the, like, this is not a thing that happens. Yeah, well, you're, and, you're tweaking yeah. on a on a four day Adderall binge, and you've uh, you know you're, you're and you can, not sure if you're hallucinating. And if you're if you're mistaken, and you like sort of overly cram on these topics, and the topics right. don't show up, you know, um, we t- uh, we quoted uh, Emma Cueto wrote the story for us. Quoted a, a UC Hastings professor, University of California Hastings uh, legal professor professor who was one of the deans. Who got uh, sent this um, uh, this uh, attachment with all the questions? He didn't open it. He thought it was just some errant email. And he, like, when students asked him what was up, he said, "Treat it like it's a hoax. Like, I this can't possibly be real." <laughs> um, so the state bar was sort of inundated with questions, like on Twitter and through more formal channels. They're like, "Is this real?" And they're like, "Yes, it's real." Um, they had sort they, they they were weeding through these these things um, and. They were sort of able to get people calmed down enough. Um, the topics, by the way, for the record, I didn't say for the essay yeah. portion were civil procedure, remedies in constitutional law, criminal law and procedure, professional responsibility, and contracts. Um, the email also disclosed the subject of the uh, performance test as objective memo evidence. No uh, maritime law in there, huh? Yeah, no, it's too bad. <laughs> maybe so, maritime okay. law heads are <clears throat> have a lot maybe next to, year. <laughs> I have a lot to say about all of this, as you can imagine. I'm just holding it in. Yeah, go I'm for it. So tightly wound about this story. Um, I took Virginia, for the record. I think I've said that on the show before. Yeah. And when I took it, Virginia had um, 26 subjects, I think, or I think it was 26 when I took it. So it's a lot. So it is a crapshoot about which ones will be Mm -hmm. on your essay day. For people that maybe uh, aren't lawyers that are listening to the show, the bars are a little bit different in every state, but it's basically broken down into two days. And one day is a a multi-state bar exam that many states have people take, and it's Mm -hmm. multiple choice. choice, Uh, Everybody prepares for that the same way because you know the subjects that are on it. It's the same test for everybody taking it at that sitting. But the other day is state-specific, and the state decides on which subject. So... Having it narrowed down in this way is a huge advantage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can imagine I had 26 
possibilities online, yeah. and you're hoping they pick ones that you know those you know se- really well. Those did seem like the hits. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's the, what I thought the too. The thing about this too is a lot of the ones that are listed here also appear on the, that multi-state exam. Yeah. So you maybe would breathe a sigh of relief because you're obviously already preparing pretty heavily for that. Yeah, and these then are pretty see, important. Uh, yeah, and then you see some of these others and you're like, all right, all right, I can do this. Um, and there may be ones now that you can just drop cramming your your last few days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you're not going to look at bankruptcy anymore. Yeah. You're not yeah. going to look at you know. So, okay, so I would have loved knowing this information. <laughs> yes, <laughs> at I'm the sure time. you would have. You mentioned that the state supreme court got involved. So what did yeah. where, where does that factor in? Uh, well, um, as I said a couple times, uh, this all happened over the weekend, which is very funny to me. The, yeah. the, the students got it on on like I said, they got this email on a Saturday. Probably spend most of Saturday and Sunday freaking out. By the time Monday rolls around. The high court of the state um, seems pretty pretty disturbed by the whole episode, um, and they have a a watchdog function over yeah. the state's bar admissions, and so um, they say this is sort of firmly within our our uh, purview. We're going to sort of conduct an investigation, and see what happened. Uh, this is what they said. They issued a statement on Monday. It said. The court will ensure that there is a thorough and independent investigation into the circumstances surrounding the disclosure and that appropriate steps are taken to protect the integrity of the bar examination and identify and address any consequences. So they're going to be taking a look at that. And there's a, it, there's just a couple of different goofy, quirky layers here. Because first of all, they have to figure out w- how and why this thing got sent to the deans right. first. Because that's that, that appears to be an accident. Right. Maybe. I mean, I don't even maybe it wasn't. I don't know. Um, but it seems errant, at least. Yeah. And then from there, they then have to go into the de- they then have to sort of evaluate the propriety of oh, the of deliberate decision to just tell everybody. <laughs> right. We've talked about why they did that. They basically said, you know, this test is administered twice a year. Sure. Like uh, it's it, it would be way it would be way too much of a logistical lift to things, reschedule and change the topics. But there are things for them to consider about mm-hmm. that um, decision and whether or not it was the right thing to do. For example, I mean, are employers going to see when you pass the bar and think like, well, you passed a lesser bar in that year yeah, where a bunch uh, more people passed. Little asterisk, or, asterisk. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What's well? What's going on? This California, I, you know, what's going on with the California I mean, State and, Bar? This certainly went up. And yeah. presumably, this causes a whole host of other problems. Like schools really vie to have high bar passage rates. So, if it's boosted well, up yeah. for California schools, and was that part of the reason that like, yes, certain right. schools deans got it and other ones didn't? So, what's going on there? Yeah. So, I mean, there's just going to be a lot to unravel with this story. Okay, from there we're gonna jump and stay in California, but jump to uh, jump once again to people who have passed the bar exam already. We yes. we, we assume so. Yes, yes, anyway. yes. We, yes. Oh, one would hope. Yeah, well, Katy Perry would hope. Yes, um, <laughs> specifically. So we're talking about Katy Perry's uh, copyright trial that wrapped up. Well, the uh, the 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 liability portion of it wrapped up on Monday when a federal jury in Los Angeles found that her 2013 hit "Dark Horse" had. Uh, had infringed a Christian rap song. Nice. This is um, this is being very true to her roots. Uh, maybe we talked about it even before when she was in her fight with the nuns. Yeah, yeah we did. Yeah. She, yeah, she. It was a was a you know Christian rock rap uh, prodigy. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, um, sorry. Anyway, uh, aside, um, the uh, – so now we're watching this week. There's going to be a sort of second half of the trial about how much she needs to pay. But um, I don't know. I feel like it's it's sort of a part of a, like a, uh, a string of these kind of cases that we've talked about. Yeah. But. I mean, I think we talk, keep talking about them for a reason. I mean, you've written some really good stories about how there is the confusing line of, of when something's inspiring another song, when something's crossing the line into actually infringing on a copyright. Exactly. And, and the contours of that are what we're talking about here. Well, exactly. the, the, the other reason we talk about them is because this is an audio format and we get to listen to some bangers. It is uh, a good uh, it's a good <laughs> type of story for our show. Friendly for the podcast. But so, okay, so here we had, uh, it was this artist named Flame. Yeah. Um, real name Marcus Gray, who sued Perry and producer Dr. Luke back in 2015, mm-hmm. claiming that, um, that Dark Horse, was, it, that it borrowed sort of pretty big elements from this 2008 song called Joyful Noise. Um, at, at issue here was was not the, like, main melody or the lyrics or sort of the more overt aspects of the song, but this little repeating underlying beat that's underneath her song almost. Um, it's called an ostinato. And uh, it appears as... Um, Mr. The, Holland's the, opus over the, here. If you go. <laughs> the, the main beat in the Flame song, um, and it sort of is just, yeah, it's like underlying mm-hmm. parries. So we'll play the clips for, for the listeners. Here is uh, Joyful Noise, the, the allegedly infringed song. You know what it is? That was our man Flame with Joyful Noise. Uh, rolling back the clock to 2008 here on the ones and twos is Kelly Marcano. Thank you. That was uh, good. Yeah, was okay, good. sorry. Like that. Okay, so that's that's, <laughs> uh, that's Flame. And here is Dark Horse. Katy Perry. Juicy J. Uh-huh. Let's rage. I knew you were. You were gonna come to me. I have such a hard time with this one in particular. Like sometimes we listen to two songs where one's alleged to infringe, yeah. and we all are kind of like, That's, you know, sounds really similar. Those it it really just does sound like a beat to me. I can't really tell. Yeah, it's it's definitely one of the more uh, you know for the 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 lay listener, it's one of the more difficult ones to sort of jump on. You know, with the um, we'll talk about it in a little while, but you know some of the Marvin Gaye ones, it's it's that that we've talked about previously. It's yeah. a little more overt, right? Um, it's funny. I mean, a lot of these kind of cases, uh, they'll. I mean, stuff and like do this you happens. Remember, like, uh, just to go back to how yeah. some are easy easier to hear. Remember when it was Sam Smith and was it Tom Petty? Yes, for yeah. that one, you could really hear that pretty clearly, just as an average listener. The stay with to me music. and won't back down. Right, and so well, and that's actually what I was just about to say, which is that these kind of things come up all the time in the music industry, and the vast majority of the time, they're just settled in in the in sort of the back room where yeah. you say okay well I'll give I think in that case they gave Tom Petty a 50% songwriting credit because right. it was very similar but mm-hmm. you know you'll you'll get a percentage on the the revenue from the song and everyone's happy with it um but this obviously didn't go that way and they filed litigation and then it went to to a trial that kicked off yeah. um in in July so when we get to this trial stage what do they have to prove what does the jury have to decide here so for you know for for Perry at least the the argument that was was twofold one was that 
she hadn't ever heard the song, um, which that, that that's a concept known as access in copyright law, mm-hmm. where you have to prove that the person had access to the song. There was a reasonable they had encountered that, it, or, yeah, exactly. And you hear that a lot from like little artists who are like, "I gave you my demo," right? Or it, it comes up even more often in the they'll give it to an agent sure. who has some tenuous link to the, and oh, so you try yeah. to come up with access theories when you're uh-huh. trying to prove a case like this. So yeah. she says that she never heard the song. Um, uh, she also argued, and this is a, a, a sort of more fundamental copyright argument, that um, that the little blip here was not actually the kind of creative expression that copyright is designed to protect. Um, that it's just this like commonplace building block that is in all sorts of songs if you went and isolated we them. We talk about this with everything that comes up with IP, I feel like, where it's like, what is just a common building block of a dance of a song of a right i mean that's the it's the fundamental thing that at the it's like a song when you think about it (laughs) but it's the cutoff of any type of ip there can't be a bigger question in ip of what does it cover and what doesn't it cover and you know what it covers starts to impinge on various other freedoms that we enjoy in this country so it's it's a it's always an interesting question The, the argument from from her attorney at trial was quote This is common musical building blocks used in many compositions. This is very basic, like kindergarten basic. They cannot monopolize that. So the 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 argument was just that that you know that this isn't even if they are similar, it's not the kind of thing that can form the basis of a copyright lawsuit. But Um, we had jurors here, and they didn't go for that. Right. So Flame argued that their song was that it, it had millions of views and that it was nominated for a grant. It was on an album that was nominated for a Grammy. So obviously they had the chance to hear it. It wasn't completely unreasonable that they would have heard it. And then that, that they, that these weren't this simple little building block that it had all sorts of other more nuanced musical aspects to it that were then copied in, mm-hmm. the, in the Katy Perry song on Monday, the jurors agreed with that argument, finding that um, Perry's song was in fact substantially similar to flames track and holding her liable for copyright infringement. The interesting part comes next, which is to figure out how much she owes from this song, yeah. which is actually going on as we speak. Um, there, the the Perry and her record labels and Dr. Luke are obviously all trying to minimize it, saying we spent X amount of costs on marketing, and here's the various reasons why yeah. we shouldn't have to pay that much. Um, but the plaintiffs have cited a $41 million revenue figure that they say that should be the basis of where they get their cut. So um, it'll be very interesting to see how the, you know, how the different co-defendants are hit with with these damages. Right. And, um, it'll be an interesting phase to see what's we've, next. We've we've alluded to some of these, like there, there's been a sort of a, I don't know if we call it a rash or whatever, but there's been a series of these cases like this that, like you say, are more often than not settled behind closed doors. We mentioned, like you mentioned Marvin Gaye already. We did. We talked about the Zeppelin thing. What, yeah. Like, is there something to ascertain from this sort of growing body of case law here? I mean, I think the 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 concern is that the the needle is moving toward uh, something unknowable or something you know, a, a type of vagueness that leads to uh, over caution by by artists that they right. they don't know exactly what copyright covers. So you're afraid to do the things that musicians do all the time, which is. You know, I loved Mar- Marvin Gaye, so I'm going to make songs that sound like Marvin Gaye. Yeah. I loved the Ramones. Every punk song that's been come out in the last 40 years is yeah. based on the yeah. Ramones. So The very idea of influence, you know. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, you, we mentioned the Blurred Lines case, which was about, um, 
uh, uh, Got to Give It Up, which is one of the most famous songs ever, um, that that that's sort of the argument that a lot of people made after that, which was they, they were just making this song that sounded like a Marvin Gaye song, and, and but they were ultimately found to infringe. And, and um, there's the Stairway Case, which is obviously that very old song that they were accused of, yep. um, um, that Led Zeppelin was accused of copying, that very iconic uh, descending mm-hmm. series of notes at the beginning of the song. Um, and again, they made the point that this isn't this isn't copyrightable. This is a thing that other people need to use. That case, interestingly enough, is up before the Ninth Circuit right now um, mm-hmm. on an en banc hearing. So it's the whole court is hearing yeah. it. So um, a lot of people are watching that case that we may get in the fall or in the spring, which could really give some definite answers about the way that um, the way that, that that artists need to approach music and approach inspiration and approach infringement. Trump took office, an unending flurry of immigration policy changes has amped up attorney stress levels. How did we get here, and how are attorneys coping? Today we're joined by senior immigration reporter Nicole Norea, who talked to attorneys to find out. Welcome back to the show, Nicole. Thanks so much for having me. It's always nice to have you here. You know I love talking about immigration. Um, But one thing in this story that you wrote, which is really good about burnout among the immigration bar, I have this notion of like, well, aren't immigration attorneys and attorneys in general, always stressed out? I think we can say that this era under Trump has been slightly different. It's been a sprint, not a marathon, since January 2017. Just even in the first few months of Trump's presidency, we had the travel ban where attorneys were showing up in airports to try to help people that were stranded. We had the Remain in Mexico policy where uh, asylum seekers are now being returned back to Mexico while they await their immigration court hearings. And We've had the Buy American, Hire American executive order under which uh, the Trump administration has been trying to protect American workers from foreign labor. Uh, And even just recently, we've had the the Supreme Court ruling that came down last week that would allow Trump to move forward with constructing the border wall uh, on the southern border in light of his national emergency declaration. Yeah, I feel like you're naming all things that were so sudden and so last minute. We haven't even name checked yet that... There are children separated from their families and and kids in um, bad conditions in detention centers. It just seems like one immigration emergency after another. Yeah, it's almost dizzying the uh, to just from the news perspective. But I'm sure for the folks who are you know in the trenches as attorneys, it's it's a um, you know it's 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 bewildering. It's it's hard to keep up with mm-hmm. with when it, when something feels like it's coming each each day. Something yeah. new. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this has always been an area of the law that is constantly evolving, but I think the pace that we've seen under the Trump administration has just been so fast. I mean, we've also just seen a lot of policy changes coming down without much notice at all. And in some cases, we've seen like U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services posting updates to their website without sending out any kind of email or notice in the Federal Federal Register. Um, So I think it's been super challenging for attorneys to really just keep stock of, of what's happening 
So attorneys are used to keeping up with changes in the law, but it seems like what you're saying is that it's all been really sudden and there's just a huge volume. Is that really what's at play here? Yeah, I, I would say so. And also, I think they have a really hard time just keeping their clients abreast of everything that's happening with the changes in the law. So it's not just them trying to make their own legal arguments, but also if a situation has changed since a client might have decided to hire them, right. they really have to have a responsibility to keep their their client abreast of those changes. Um, And I think that is also an exhausting part of this, uh, just making sure that their clients are in the loop. And I mean, we've also, when you were sort of going through your your laundry list of all these big changes, Many of them are affecting really vulnerable populations. And I would imagine, and I remember back when I was a reporter on the immigration beat years ago, a lot of the attorneys I talked to, they're passionate about helping immigrants. So that must add to the the pressure levels they're feeling. Yeah, I mean, I think the immigration bar, as we've always discussed, is uh, somewhat unique among legal professions and that they're all pretty much on the same page politically when it comes to immigration issues. So I think a lot of attorneys are just facing the fact that the stakes right now are so much higher than they ever have been. And I imagine that's a huge amount of pressure that they have to have on their shoulders. A lot of the conversation around immigration law often deals with, as Amber said, vulnerable communities. And um, but but when when you were working on your story, d- did you talk to any um, you know folks who were more on the business end of things, people who were trying to secure visas, people who were working with sort of in the in the corporate capacity? I mean, is is I have to imagine that you know, they're stressed out as well, but it's it's more work, at least, for, for for attorneys who are working sort of in that world. I mean, is there is that sort of the silver lining when you're when you're looking at this? Sort of- I had made a terrible joke about this. And like uh, we sent around some like little notes about like, hey, here's some stuff we want to talk about. And I made the old sort of corny dad joke of when the economy goes down and business professionals are all super stressed out. Bankruptcy attorneys are psyched. OK, yes, they have is- a ton to do. I mean, it's not that they <laughs> want the economy to be bad, but. It is good for the, your workload, at least. Does that, yeah. What, yeah, that's, that that's the that exact analogy that I'm sort of getting at, yeah. For sure. I mean, I think that, you know, it's become more critical now, more so than ever, uh, for clients to be hiring immigration attorneys just to navigate yeah. this really complicated environment. Um, and I was at the American Immigration Lawyers Association's national conference recently where this guy got up on stage and said that, uh, you know, in the past he had clients – call him up and say if he had done something wrong you know what's going on here you know what have you done to to sabotage my visa application mm-hmm. um but nowadays they call him up and say instead that oh man that president trump like just right so how like, horrible people just are sort of primed now to know that things are really tough to get through yeah for sure but um i mean at the same time it's just really difficult it's still a difficult environment in general for immigration attorneys to be just navigating all these changes in the law. So, for example, you know, we've been seeing a huge amount of visa denials where, you know, it might have been routine visa filings before. So in this past fiscal, fiscal year, we saw a 10-year high in H-1B skilled worker visa denials. Yeah. Um, and we've also seen processing times for visas go up almost 50%. Uh, and both of those things are really hard to explain to clients, I imagine. Yeah. Um, Especially these corporate clients, they're used to a certain level of things. Just um, I don't want to say rote because immigration is always a little hard, but they're just used to, oh, if we file X number of H-1B visas, we're going to get this number approved. Um, and if we are waiting on a worker to get um, you know, some some things pushed through with their visas, it's going to take X amount of time. And if it's drastically different, that's tough to get people to understand why. 
Yeah. Um, and I that, again, takes a lot of communication between attorneys and their clients to just make sure that they're keeping abreast of, of the policy changes. And also just how the culture of a place like U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services has changed under the Trump administration. I mean, you had the, the head of USCIS saying that, you know, this isn't an agency that's meant to serve immigrants. It's meant to vet them. So it's... It, yeah, that's a right. d- different cultural shift in that agency for sure because there were previous administrations that said the exact opposite, that they were there to serve, yeah. to be the conduit for visas and process things in a timely fashion and all of that. Mm-hmm. So um, it, seem, it seems like, um, you know, that it's pretty evident that all of this would lead to not just the stress of not knowing what the rules were, but just late nights and, and you know, it's just tons of, of work for these folks. Is there, you know, did you talk to anyone about what what attorneys who work in this world are doing to sort of avoid feeling crushed by it all? Yeah, I mean, the simplest solution, of course, is just to take a step back from work and take a day off or a vacation, if that's even feasible. But I know a lot of attorneys who haven't take vaca- taken a vacation in years. Just- or even if they have, it's really hard to, even if you want to put down your work email and not check what your clients need, Immigration is on the news every day. It's just, it's hard to really step away. Yeah, for sure. So um, places like AILA, the American Immigration Lawyers Association, has come up with resources for attorneys to sort of both deal with the workflow challenges that are created by these constantly changing policies and also just mental health and well-being. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the workflow side. What kind of stuff are they suggesting that could make this a bit more manageable? So they have a lot of tutorials on how to streamline your workflow and uh, digitize processes that you might be doing on paper right now. So like if you're stuck having to be on a bunch more client calls because you're explaining all these changes, here's ways to make other parts of your job Mm. a little more streamlined to give you that space and time. Yeah. And you can even create a client portal online that allows clients to access information about their cases on their own time. So you don't have to necessarily explain everything Everything, to them on the phone. so all of those things might be helpful, as well as also uh, digitizing your your bills and stuff like that to make sure that... Um, yeah, and that sounds um, common sense on one level, but especially in the immigration um, realm and some other areas of the law that might be feeling some downward pressure, they tend to be small firms and some solo practitioners and stuff like that. So they might not already be doing those things. Yeah, for sure. Um and then I guess also on the sort of more mental health well-being side, Ayla yeah. uh, has some resources dedicated for kind of a self-care center. Um, and one of the issues that they might cover in that, for example, would be for attorneys that are in immigration court and are often faced with clients who have had horrific backgrounds and situations sure. um, and fled violence, uh, how to deal with secondhand trauma is a, is a huge issue for mm. them. Um, and so as a mental health issue, that's something that Ayla is definitely trying to bring awareness to. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think um, your story was really interesting. I think people should definitely read it, even if they're not immigration attorneys in that world, because some of these um, suggestions apply to any stressed out attorney. And one of the things I thought was really um, good to think about is that some of these uh, assistance programs that are designed for mental health also just apply to burnout. People sometimes act like working hard is its own end and you should be able to just suck it up and keep going. Mm-hmm. But it really is a mental health issue all its own. Yeah. Yeah. And it was shocking to me just how many attorneys were sort of reluctant to talk to me 
um, for the story on the record. And yeah. I think it still speaks to the fact that there is still a stigma around mental health issues in the legal profession. And especially at a time when immigration attorneys are in such high demand, they don't really want to acknowledge that they're may be barriers to them, you know, completing their cases to the best well, of their ability. reading your story made me really glad that I have my own vacation scheduled for, for <laughs> next week because I thought, yeah, a burnout happens in a lot of professions. Yep. Uh, this is like an extreme version <laughs> of it based on current events. But yeah, it is a reminder to take these things seriously. Um, and can you tell us a little bit more about why we should take it seriously? I, I don't mean that as like a glib question, but I think sometimes people are like, burnout, whatever. They're just not strong enough <laughs> to get the job done. Yeah. Well, so the American Bar Association came out with a report, I think this was in 2017, um, basically equating mental health and well-being with an ethical obligation to clients. Yeah. And that totally makes sense. I mean, if you can't take care of yourself, how can you expect to take care of your client? So I think that is something that attorneys really need to sort of think about and reframe this discussion about mental health in, in light of that. I think that's a really good place to leave this conversation because I'd like people to take that as the big takeaway of what we're talking about here. Schedule a vacation, everybody. Um, <laughs> thanks for being with us, Nicole, to talk about it. Thanks for having me. Our show is something offbeat, and as we teased a little earlier, this one's bananas. B a n a n a s. Definitely. Did I add an extra in there? <laughs> yeah. The well, I, I think you might be infringing Gwen Stefani, and I don't know. If, I don't know if we want to go down that road again. Well, uh, honestly, we're going from you know we were talking about music <laughs> copyrights before, just the iconic types of copyrightable stuff: books, music, movies. Banana costumes. <laughs> I always think it. I think copyright. I'm trying to tell people what copyright law covers, and I say banana costumes. Yeah. So we got a ruling today from the Third Circuit that uh, that said banana costumes are copyrightable. It's kind of weird. It's kind of a weird thing to even say. Um, <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> well, first off, hey, first as a point of clarity, these bananas are they wearing pajamas? <laughs> it's just straight up banana costume. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway. <laughs> Straight up banana costume. Okay. And hey, okay. So I want you to explain the two companies that issue here because I think that's funny too. Yeah. It was, um, it's a costume, it's a, like a Halloween costume company called Rasta Impasta. Um, <laughs> I love based, that so much. Based in New Jersey. <laughs> Normal. Uh, and they sued a former distributor that was selling a very lookalike uh, version of their banana right. costume. And if anybody's wondering about this, because this is, I know uh, we had good song clips earlier, and now we're talking about something that's yeah. truly a visual. Yeah. Um, they should check out Law360 today. For a while, it was the top story on our website right because it was just such a delight. Yep. And there's a good picture of the two costumes next to each other. Yeah, so, I mean, you, listener, are probably thinking, like, hmm, I didn't think that clothes uh, were subject to copyright law. They That's can- what they're all thinking, Bill. They can be. Apparently now, yeah. So there's a Supreme Court ruling a couple years ago that said that uh, cheerleading uniforms yep. can be, and that... that Raised all sorts of concerns among people that, you know, that all sorts of three-dimensional objects were going to be subject to <laughs> to copyright law. And the only reason that raises a lot of concerns is because patents are for 20 years. Copyrights are for like 120 now. They right. just keep mo- moving them moving them back. So, But explain wh- why something you wear would be copyrightable. So there, the, typically there is this carve-out that says that, you're, you know, stuff that is utilitarian, that's supposed to be covered by patent law. And stuff right. that's like creative and artistic, that's supposed to be covered by 
copyright law. But um, th- there is this rule that says that if they the two things are intertwined, you have to figure out if you can sort of pull out the expressive stuff from yeah. the from the the thing underneath. Peel it back. Yeah. <laughs> um, so <laughs> uh, I couldn't. I you you, you were making a gesture <laughs> that was like like, like peeling a banana. Well, yeah. All right. So okay. So for the banana costume. Is it all just design? What could be functional in the banana costume? Honestly, I was tweeting about this earlier, and like, like elite copyright scholars were weighing in, being like, "I have no idea what any of this, like, <laughs> what, how how this rule works." Where it's like, well, the function is looking like a banana. It is so like like bordering on metaphysical. Like where it's like, what what does what do, do constitutes the the thing that you can? So what they said was that like the 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 function as a costume. Is not covered by copyright law, but the shape as a banana is is covered by copyright law. If it it doesn't make sense to you, it doesn't make any sense to me either. Here's my favorite part of this whole saga today, and it truly has been a saga talking about the story all day with you. Uh, At one point, you chatted me and you were like, this whole opinion doesn't make any puns or jokes about this being a banana costume Mm -hmm. until the very end. At the very end. Yeah, the judge judge had more restraint than I did just before earlier in the story. At the very end... The judge uh, wrote that the company uh, is entitled to, quote, the fruits of their intellectual labor. It's great. I it like was... the judicial restraint, as we talk about often on the show. Exactly. That's a true sign of Clearly, that. I have no I have no standing to to sneer at that since I did something worse like two seconds ago. He didn't. So. He managed to uh, slip that one in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before we split, uh, we, we should. That was oh. great. I'm just going to take that as if I said it and end the show here. <laughs> Thanks for explaining that story, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our special guest this week, Nicole Norea, and contributing reporters, Emma Cueto and Lauren Berg. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about, check out our website, law360.com slash podcast. That's where you can find those banana costume pictures. Please subscribe to our show wherever you find podcasts. And if you like it, leave us a review so other people can find us. Thanks, and see you again next week. <laughs>